All right, today we're going to continue our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're going to read from Acts chapter, or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 to 34. So as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Are you... Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. You may be seated. Morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. I'm thankful that we get to be together around God's word this morning. Um, You know, people have been telling me how spicy the sermons have been in this series, and it's true. They're spicy. This one's not very spicy, Um, at least not in our time. About 500 years ago, very spicy. I wanted to start off with a question this morning. Um, How do you grow as a Christian? How do you grow? How do you, for example, grow in the fruit of the Spirit or in holiness or in becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I remember thinking as a kid that uh, one of the ways that I would grow as a Christian is if I read my Bible more and that I would get like extra brownie points with God if I could like complete an entire book of the Bible. So naturally I would find those books of the Bible that were the shortest, like Third John, and I would, you know, read it real quick and I'd think, yes, yes, I've done it. Um, you will grow, by the way, if you read your Bible uh, with different approach than what I had, with different motives. You may remember this from earlier in First. This is the reason I'm asking this question. You may remember from First Corinthians three, earlier in this series, Paul 
tells the Corinthians, you're supposed to be mature by now. But I had to bottle feed you instead of giving you solid food. You're babies in the faith. Why were they babies? Very simply, they had divisions. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. They missed the one that gave the growth. In this section of 1 Corinthians, started last week, and we're going to keep pushing on through for the next several weeks, we've begun to see that growth happens not only when we're alone in a room with a Bible and a cup of coffee, Instagramming it for our friends. It not only happens when we're having a small group with other people, but it happens in the rightly ordered gathering of God's people to worship him. In other words, it's happening right here, right now. You grow as a Christian right here, right now in this environment. That's happening. God is at work in your life. You're growing in maturity as a follower of him. And maybe our greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of our growth here of knowing and and following Christ, of experiencing the joy of knowing him, isn't so much what's out there in the world, the culture, the politics, whatever you want to pin that on, the erosion of the family, but one of our greatest enemies Perhaps our greatest enemy is right here in this room. It's our relationships with one another. It was for the Corinthians. So, what's really key to your growth, not only as a follower of Jesus, but for us as a faith family? What would you say? If you're going to say what something in particular that was going to cause us to grow, I would argue that one of the most powerful gifts that God has given us to growing into the likeness of Jesus is the simple but profound act of what's on that table right there, the Lord's Supper. It's not something that you normally think about, but it's true. It's one of the clearest patterns of worship that we have that both display the worthiness and the works of Christ and the way that we are united in him. So we're going to learn more this morning about this ancient practice, this millennia-old practice of the Lord's Supper, of communion. You'll hear me use those words interchangeably throughout this sermon. What we're going to see is this. It's going to be up here on the screen. We're going to see three things. One, how not to take the Lord's Supper. Two, what the Lord's Supper is. And then three, how to take the Lord's Supper. I need God's help. So do you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these moments that we have together as your people in your presence. We ask that you come and speak to us now through your word. Unite us in worship. Remind us, Lord Jesus, of what you've done for us. We pray that you, the risen Lord Jesus, would be on glorious display throughout all we do this morning, including these few minutes we spend in your word. Come give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, how to not take the Lord's Supper, okay? Verse 17, uh, if you have a Bible, open it on up. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Um, very familiar passage. We read it every week, right? So rich. There's so much for you here. I hope you're really dialed in this morning. 
We're going to start at verse 17. We're going to walk through it. Again, how not to take the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. You might remember the way that Paul opened this section in uh, 11 verse 2. He commends the Corinthian church in, in verse 2, but here, not so much. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. It's better for them, this is what Paul's saying, it's better for them to, get, to not gather as a church because of how badly they're corrupting the Lord's table. They're actually being destructive to the cause of Christ by doing communion the way that they're doing it right now. We need to get a little background to understand what's going on. So let me just, let me just kind of describe the scene, set the scene for you here. Churches at that time gathered in houses, typically a larger house, right? So you can fit everybody that would want to come and join the worship service. And a larger house, just as it does, generally speaking, around the world, a larger house meant the owner was tended to be wealthier. In those days, the separation between the rich and the poor was very stark, very big, that gulf between rich and poor. You knew who was rich, you knew who was poor, and they did not associate with each other. Now, the gospel comes in, radically changes that. How so? Picture this, a slave that's working in somebody's house one day, let's say Saturday, goes to church with the master of the house on Sunday and the slave that was serving at the master's whims Monday through Saturday is now the elder of the church on Sunday leading the master in worship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You see how that turns the social order on its head? Apparently in Corinth, the homeowner, the host, seized that moment of the church gathering in their house as an opportunity to host a meal. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Kind of a networking thing. Only though inviting those of the same class. It's kind of a pre-church party. Food, drinks, having a good time. Well, while these elites are eating together, these richer class people, the church would show up. People of all classes. And they were not invited to the party. It was during this meal communion would happen. Some were included, some were excluded. So that's the problem. That's what's going down. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we've preached on this in the past, says this. I think it'll be up here on your screen. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Around this room right now, you're going to, if you look around, you can see there's many breads right? Loaves of bread. But in your mind, what you might want to visualize is this, a single loaf, right up here up front. Many people, us, many hands, our hands, all taking a piece of that one loaf. And the bread is Christ. He is our provision. We all depend on him. He unites us. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about. And so, when we come to take this bread in a little bit, and that's exactly how we're going to do it. We're going to wrap up this sermon with real-time application, right? We're going to close this sermon by practicing literally what I'm preaching about. 
In a little bit, you're going to come up here, you're going to take this bread, you're going to dip it in the wine or the juice. What we're doing when we do that is we are proclaiming to the cosmos, to all of creation, that there are no divisions here. That we are one body here. That she might be rich and he might be poor. That he might be black and she might be white. That he might be a Democrat and she might be a Republican. That he might be annoying. Not you, sorry. I'm just, just, just examples. He might be annoying. She might be self-serving. But when we come together, we're one body. Real practical application. In just a couple minutes, when we take communion, question for you. Where should you look? That's a weird question. What does that have to do with this? No, seriously. I'm seriously asking. Where should you look when you're taking communion? What do you look at? Maybe you close your eyes when you pray. And then, let me encourage you to look around. Look around the room. To look at our brothers and sisters that the Lord has gathered here. The ones that he has bought with his blood. We truly are family. One body in the Lord Jesus Christ. Divisions are anti-gospel. That's how serious this is. That's why Paul's so mad. Our church divisions whether it's about sermon styles or music preferences or people we like or don't like or political persuasions or just uh, a general unwillingness to associate with certain people in this church that makes a mockery of the gospel and of the blood of Jesus Christ. It mocks the cross. When we disassociate ourselves from other people here, when we start to look down on or gossip about, or grow bitter toward someone else, we despise the church of God. That's what it says in verse 21. You despise the church of God. Jesus' blood-bought bride. This is how not to take communion. Heed the warning against division. We need to be like division bloodhounds around here, where anytime you get a whiff, you get a sniff of division, You want to put that down. You want to nip it in the bud in your own heart or in others. You want to lovingly come alongside people in that. No division here. We are one body here. It was bought with Jesus' blood here. Believe what this table is saying to us. That's what I'm inviting you to do this morning. To believe what the table represents. Believe the gospel. One bread. One body. You are welcome here. You belong here. You're a brother or sister here. And there are no divisions here. So that's what the Lord's Supper is not. That's how Paul starts this, this particular section of Scripture. The Lord's Supper is not this. You do not use it to divide. By nature, it unites us. Verses 23 through 26 is the the section of scripture that we're all very familiar with if you've been coming here to christ community we do recite it every week when we break the bread and uh, take the cup together and this section is what the lord's supper is there's going to be five points to this 
You know, communion, Lord's Supper, it might be very, very familiar to you. Maybe you've taken it all, you know, every Sunday for a very, very long time. I've been, I've been praying for this time. And not only me, other people have been praying for this time. That the Lord would open your eyes to behold something fresh and new in these moments. I want to see what he does. Let's look at this. Five things. What the Lord's Supper is. First, the Lord's Supper is hosted by Jesus. It's hosted by Jesus. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Do you remember that telephone game? You tell her, she tells him, he tells him, and so on down the line. Well, the Lord's Supper was received by Paul, and then Paul delivered it to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians delivered it to other Christians, and so on and so forth, until down through the ages to us. But it started with Jesus. We can read about this in the gospel accounts. While the plot to murder Jesus swung into high gear, which, of course, he knew about, he wanted to celebrate the Passover meal with those whom he loved, his disciples. He gathered the disciples. He called them together. He invited them. He wanted even to recline with them, even so closely that one of the disciples lays his head on Jesus' chest. Luke twenty two fifteen says this. You don't need to turn there. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. When we come to the Lord's table, here's what I want you to know. He's already there waiting for you. He made the preparations. He did what was necessary. He invites you here to his table. And this is not a sacrifice. This is not, a, this is not an altar on which every Sunday we make a new, fresh sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. That sacrifice has been made once for all. It's complete. This is a table, not an altar. A family table. A table of hospitality. Where the host says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls here. In Psalm 23, maybe the most well-known psalm of all, we see God as a loving shepherd who walks with his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. And you know what we also see in there? He's a host. You prepare a table before me. My cup overflows. That's what kind of host he is. He is your shepherd host. And he has laid out a feast for us. Doesn't look like a feast, but it is a feast. He lays it out Sunday after Sunday. A feast for your soul. An invitation to come and renew and refresh your soul. Your thirsty and your hungry soul. Jesus says, come, meet me in the upper room. Let me prepare a feast for you. Jesus is the host. That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second thing. The Lord's Supper is a participation in Jesus. Verses 24 and 25. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. 
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We'll just stop there. Let me take you back for just a second as we think about what those verses say to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. It'll be up here on the screen. This is what it says here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Here's what Paul's saying in the context of his argument in in 1 Corinthians 10. When you feast with idols, you participate with idols. That is, you have fellowship with idols. You have fellowship with a dark, demonic force. And by comparison, when you take the cup, when you eat the bread, you participate. You have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Worshiping an idol, taking the Lord's Supper, those two things are not merely a mental exercise. You're having a spiritual encounter. Real spiritual encounter. To be clear, I, I want to be clear about this. We encounter Christ in many ways in Sunday morning. Through the preaching of the word, through the singing of the songs, the prayers, even through one another. The Holy Spirit is here. He's described as the Spirit of Christ. And we encounter Christ's presence through the Lord's Supper. Here's more specifically what I mean. When we encounter Christ in this moment of communion, remember we sometimes call it communion. Did you catch that? Communion? Connection? You're entering into God's grand story of salvation. There's a connection happening. Not only with Jesus, spiritually, but with a great story that stretches all the way back to the beginning and will stretch all the way into eternity future. Think of this meal as Jesus designed it. What was the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples? It was the Passover. What was the Passover? Exodus 12 tells us it was a memorial meal commemorating the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt. And how did the Exodus, the escape from Egypt, occur? What was the final plague? You may remember this story. The firstborn son of every home would die except for the homes where a lamb was slaughtered and that blood was painted on the threshold of the door. And the angel of the Lord would pass over that door and that child would be saved. That is the meal that Jesus was eating. That is the meal that's represented before us. The people were delivered by the lamb. When we take the bread and take the cup, we participate once again in the great deliverance story. We're connected to our brothers and sisters all the way back there and those that came after them up to this moment and those who are coming after us. We were in slavery to sin and death. We had no hope. We would would have despaired. But God freed us. How? The Lamb of God whose blood covers me and you. The Lord's Supper draws the family of God into the events that resulted in our salvation. It is a retelling of an old, old story. And it's the ongoing story of our great God who delivers and saves. Now, maybe you think 
that's just real general. It's like a big blob of people and it doesn't have anything to do with you and your situation. Look again at verse 24. What does Jesus say about the bread? This is my body, which is for you. You need to receive that today. When we enter into the story, when you enter into the story, you are having fellowship, communion with Christ when you take that. Not a real physical presence, but something that ought to make us say Sunday after Sunday, surely God is in this place. Sometimes fellowship with God is spectacular. It's, you know, moving, miraculous. Most of the time, it's common, ordinary. God delights to use common, ordinary means like bread from schnooks and boxed wine to meet with his people. Jesus is here, and we are meeting with him. The Lord's Supper is not only about what he did for us way back then. It's a real fellowship with him. He's drawing us into this great story. It started way back then. It's happening right now. It's continuing on. The Lord's Supper is a participation in Jesus. Here's the third one. The Lord's Supper is covenantal. Verse 25. Just a little snippet of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. Covenants are relationships to which we're mutually bound. Two parties mutually bound to each other. Marriage is probably our best example. Modern day example. God made a covenant with his people. He kept his end of the bargain to be a faithful God, to bless us, to keep us, to provide for us. And we, humanity, did not. Nevertheless, our covenant-keeping God promised this. And you need to hear this. This is a prophecy from many years before Jesus, from the prophet Jeremiah. He talked about the new covenant that was coming. And this is precisely what he was talking about. What we're celebrating here this morning. The new covenant in Jesus' blood. This is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Track with me. It's on the screen up there. Behold. He's talking to you. Behold. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So this is the new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. How was that new covenant put in place? The blood of Jesus Christ. Covenants come with blessings for keeping it and curses for breaking it. Covenants come with blessings for keeping it and curses for breaking it. Jesus, 
on the night when everyone was betraying him, being the unfaithful wife, breaking covenant with him, took the cup of covenant blessing and handed it to us. What was in the cup? He handed us the cup of blessing. Here is what was in the cup. I will put my law within them, the Holy Spirit. I will be their God and they will be my people. Relationship with the living God. They shall all know me. Everyone who trusts in Christ knows God. Remember their sins no more. Our sins are gone. We were the unfaithful spouse. And God loved us still. And what was in the cup that Jesus drank that night? Our unfaithfulness. Our whoring after the world. Our sin. And the wrath of God for that covenant breaking. He drank it to the last dark drop. Makes me think of this this hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. The Lord's Supper is covenantal. Here's number four. The Lord's Supper is remembrance that brings assurance. Verse 24 says this, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25 says this, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Fundamentally, the Lord's Supper is a meal about remembering Jesus. Have you ever noticed this? How when you smell certain things, it rockets memories into your mind. You smell like you know, it comes like a certain time of a year, spring or fall or whatever, and you think, you know, whatever it is, uh, football, or like it turns to spring, and you think, oh, school's almost done, or uh, you smell a certain food, and you remember somebody from your past or a place. We're sensory creatures. God made us that way. God made us not only to hear, not only to see, but to touch, smell, taste. The Lord's Supper is a gospel sensory experience. We hear the gospel preached and and sung and prayed, and we see the gospel in the words of our Bibles. But here at the table, in a unique way, we touch, taste, and even smell the good news that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We remember through biblical show and tell. How does that help us remember and reassure us? That's what I said at the beginning. Listen to the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can see them up here on the screen. It's an ancient document of the faith. It's a question and answer, just like what we do during our confessional time earlier. The question is this. How does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? Answer, in this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, 
as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, given to me, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Do you get that? When you come to this table this morning, literally in just a couple minutes, when you come to this table to to touch and smell and taste, here's what I want you to remember. That just as real as this bread and this cup is here, so really did Jesus give himself for you. It really did happen for you. Do you feel weighted down? Are your anxieties out of control? Do you feel like your sin is through the roof? Do you feel like you don't belong? Like you're not welcome at the table? Do you wonder, man, I've been gone from God's for so long. How could I ever be received by him here? I could never come to this table again. Let me tell you something. You need this table. As surely as the bread and the cup are there, so surely did Jesus Christ die for your sins. As surely as the bread and cup are there, so surely does Jesus nourish and refresh your thirsty soul. The Lord's Supper is remembrance that brings assurance. Here's the last one. The Lord's Supper is a meal of hope. A meal of hope. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, we pronounce, proclaim, announce, To the whole world, and yeah, maybe not everybody can hear us, but we're announcing in this place, the Lord Jesus died for my sins. The Lord Jesus is coming again, and I will wait for him. This is a meal of hope. This is not the final meal. Obviously, it's measly, it's puny. But there will be a final meal. This is just a teeny tiny appetizer, a little foretaste of the meal that is to come. The wedding supper awaits you, brothers and sisters. Are you sick of your sins? Are you sick and tired of the sting of death? Are you looking for hope in your life? Hope that's real, as real as the bread and and the juice and the wine that is on the table then come to the table. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and receive from him. We're leaning into glory. We're leaning into reality. You want something real? Jesus is real. It's an end of suffering and sin. We lean in this morning to taste a little bit more, a reminder now of what is to come until the day that faith becomes sight. This is a meal of hope. Now, how do we take it? How do we take it this morning? 
verses 27 through, 24, through 34 tells us how to take the Lord's Supper. And just in a nutshell, it's this. It tells us to not eat in an unworthy manner. It tells us to examine ourselves. It tells us that eating wrongly will bring judgment on us in all kinds of ways. Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean you've got to get your sin sorted out before you come to the table. Sometimes I think, at least I, I sometimes used to, I used to think this way, I, I think this way, I sometimes still do, that if I've had a particularly sinful week, you can't come here, you're not welcome here. That's wrong. We should hang a sign on the table that says, come you sinners, poor and needy. If you've had a bad week, you need this so bad. You're totally qualified to come and take the bread and the cup. This does mean, though, that you need to take stock of your soul before God. This is a moment of reflection. So let me ask some questions. Let me help you take stock of your own heart before God. Here's the first question. Have you trusted Jesus, the Lamb of God, who gave himself for you for the forgiveness of your sin? If you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you never have, I plead with you to trust him. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait before it's too late. This is the day that the Lord is calling you to join in to this grand story of redemption, of salvation, of restoration. He's calling you right now to come and join And if you trust him today, if you turn to him in prayer in a couple moments and you say, Lord Jesus, I trust in you, I need you, then with great joy, I invite you to stand with us. When we all do, stand and come and take communion with us because now you are part of the body. You belong to Christ and to us as brothers and sisters. Here's another question to ask. Self-reflection, but this passage starts us here. Lord, where am I failing to love your people? The reflection that we're invited to first, in 1 Corinthians 11 here, is to discern the body, to think about the other people in the room. Maybe people who are closer to you. Maybe it's your brother or your sister, like your biological brother or sister, or your spouse or a friend, roommate, neighbor, but somebody else in the room. Where are you failing to, where am I failing, Lord, to love your people? This table here is a table of celebrating, of remembering forgiveness. It's a table of oneness. It's a table where when you come close, you say, Where do I need to lay my sins? Where do I bring my burdens? I lay them at the foot of the cross. I'm going to tell you something. I was was literally writing this section of the sermon this morning, just kind of tightening up. I do this every Sunday morning. I'm tightening up this particular section, and I got a totally unexpected text, a voice message came across from Nick Volkening. Nick is the pastor of New City Church here in town. Good church, solid church. I love them. We love them. We partner with them and other things. And he just said, hey man, just felt the Lord putting you in my heart. I just want to pray for you. And he prayed for me on that voice message. 
And he prayed, God, would you bring revival? Isn't that in our blood right now? You hear about Asbury? Don't get cynical about it, guys. Would you bring revival? And he prayed, would it start in Christ's community? What he didn't know is I was praying that all week because I knew what was waiting for us at the table this morning. Confession proceeds, precedes revival. We lay our burdens down. Confession is just saying to Jesus, I am desperate for you. I do not have what it takes. I cannot do this. I cannot bear my weight, the weight of my struggles and my sin, my anxieties, my life anymore. Is there, more, is there a more clear picture in all of life than this table where it says, I cannot do it, but you did. He did. What do you need this morning? What do you need? He's here. He is our provision. Revival starts from that place where we know we don't have anything to offer or give. And we need him. Revival does not come from a place of strength, but from a place of desperation that he might receive the glory. You know, we don't need revival. What we need is the reviver. And that's who we're coming to meet with. That's who we've been meeting with this morning. That's who we come to meet with in a particular way when we come to the table. And that's what I want to invite you to join me right in right now. We're going to do this right now. No break. Yep, believe it. It's happening. I'm going to read our passage again so that it's fresh in our minds. We're going to go right to communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, what we all need is him, of course. And he, he gave it himself to us. We, he broke his body for us. And he poured out his blood for us. This table, as we've talked about already, it's for the body, for brothers and sisters in, G- in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who, be- who have trusted in him. And if you haven't, this table isn't yet for you, but I hope that you'll hear the words that I said before. This morning I've proclaimed the gospel to you, that salvation comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day to receive that. And if you receive Jesus as your Lord today, Come. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. You're part of the body. But if you're not a Christian, I'd invite you to reflect on the very things that we've talked about all this morning. Remember, remember what we've learned as you come up here. Don't just get caught in the same rut of how you do communion every single Sunday. Do it differently today. Think about something. Pluck something in particular from what we've learned in the passage today. Jesus is here. He's the host. Or... You're participating in him or the story that you're a part of or the hope 
that is filling, flooding, overflowing on this table. Remember these things. You're part of a new covenant. And then come and, and when you get here, remember, look around. Look around. Remember, these are your brothers and sisters. We're one body. And then take touch. I, I won't be offended if you give it a little sniff. Remember that just as truly as the bread was broken, as truly as this cup and this bread is here, that Jesus really did do that for you. He did. He did. And, I, and, and before you come up here, I, I want to just stress one more thing, that this is a moment where, where God is clearly at work, that it, he, it, sometimes it feels amazing, sometimes it doesn't, and, and sometimes we, we can recognize that he's doing that, and sometimes we don't. But he is at work. So what's he telling you? Be sensitive. Be sensitive in this moment to what the Spirit is talking to you about. Don't just rush up to come and get this. Do you need to confess something? And I don't mean like go across the room. Maybe you need to. You need to go across the room and confess someone to somebody else. We need to discern the body, right? But maybe you need to talk to somebody and just say, hey, look, I'm struggling in this way. Will you pray for me? I'm going to stand over there. If you want me to pray for me, for, for you, if you want to come pray for me, you can come pray for me. If you want me to pray for you, I will pray for you too. I would, I would love that. Um, grab somebody who's around too, one of the elders if you know them or somebody that you know. Just say, sometimes we need an embodied experience of the forgiveness of Christ. That is, someone who's saying to us, yes, I will pray for you. And you know what, brother? You know what, sister? You are forgiven because of Jesus. Sometimes that helps. So let's turn to him now. Let's continue meeting with him now. Now through the bread and the cup, let me pray for us. Seal this to our hearts, Lord God. Bring renewal and revival here today, Lord God. Save souls, Father. Who is like you, Lord Jesus? You are awesome to save. You're the lamb that died for me. (laughs) My sins are gone. Come again soon. In Jesus' name, amen.